In his memorable children's book, The Priest with Dirty Clothes, R.C. Sproul tells a memorable story of a priest named Jonathan who was installed in a church in a small medieval town. As part of his duties, he was given a set of fantastically bright, spotless garments to wear as part of his officiating duties. However, on the way to church the very first Sunday, a rainstorm broke out, drenching Jonathan and his new clothes. What's worse, as he went along, uh, the horse he was riding stumbled and threw him into the mud. By the time he arrived at the church, he was filthy from head to toe. As he stood up to preach that morning, one of the congregants named Malice rose and shouted, Wait! You can't preach in front of the king wearing those dirty clothes. The king happened to be at the church that morning, and he agreed with malice that this situation was unacceptable. He told the priest he needed to return the next week with clean clothes so he could properly officiate his duties. Otherwise, he could no longer serve as priest. Well, Jonathan was thankful for this second opportunity, so he went home and he washed his clothes But to his dismay, he was not able to get the stains out. He took the clothes to the launderer, and he too was unable to remove the stains. Finally, Jonathan went to the bishop, and he said, Could I somehow earn a new set of clothes? And the bishop said, Sorry, that's not how this works. You receive only one set. There's nothing I can do. And Jonathan pleaded with him, Is there anything else? Is there any other way? The bishop said, there is really only one way to resolve this issue. You must go to the prince, and he will help you. So with some trepidation, Jonathan went and visited the priest. The priest was an imposing figure. He was arrayed with shining clothes and jewels, and yet his voice was calm and soft, and his face was kind. And so Jonathan went and asked what could be done. And the priest said, I understand your problem and I can help you. Jonathan wondered how the prince would help him. The prince told him, next week, go to church wearing your old, dirty clothes and I will take care of them. Well, this sounded like potentially a solution, but Jonathan was uncertain of what would happen. So he followed the instructions from the prince the next Sunday. He came to church and It came time to preach his message, so he strode to the front of the church and began his sermon. Malice again stood up and he said, he cannot preach in those clothes, and suddenly the crowd fell silent as a stranger strode to the front of the church. The stranger wore a coarse brown robe, the kind that priests typically wore under their uh, fine garments, and he was carrying a present under his arm. After a moment of surveying the crowd, the uh, crowd gasped in recognition when they realized this was none other than the prince himself. With a smile, the prince stood next to Jonathan and told him to take off his dirty, priestly outer garments. He took those off, revealing a scratchy brown gown below. The prince then gave the present to Jonathan and encouraged him to open it right there. Inside, Jonathan found the prince's own bright garments. The prince said, these are the spotless clothes that I promised you. Put them on now and preach your sermon. 
He turned to his father, the king, and he said, Now will you accept Jonathan since he is wearing my own clothes? And the king said to the prince, Yes, my son, as long as he wears your clothes, he may stand in front of me. The prince then said to Jonathan, These clothes are yours forever. They will never wear out. Nothing can make them dirty. They are perfect for you. And from that day on, Jonathan preached in the prince's clothes and never stopped extolling the kindness and generosity of the prince. In this story, I think we see many parallels to the biblical account in front of us here in Zechariah 3. In Zechariah 3, a dire situation is faced in which the officiating priest Joshua is recognized to be unfit for service due to his filthy garments. And in a wonderful transaction, the angel of the Lord cleanses him and equips him for service. And here in Zechariah 3, we see a wonderful picture of the gospel that I'd like to unpack as we work through the text this morning. We're jumping into the middle of a book which many consider a difficult and challenging book. Some might even consider it strange at times. In the opening six chapters, Zechariah sees a series of eight night visions. These visions all take place in one night in the month of February 520 B.C. To set the context, this is a time in which Israel had been in Babylon in captivity for 70 years and had now returned to the land. And in particular, there were two leaders who were now instrumental in leading the people of Israel, Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. Joshua the high priest is addressed here in this chapter and Zerubbabel will be addressed in the next chapter. In chapter 3, the concern is that Joshua, because of his filthy garments, is unfit for service. And in chapter 4, the concern will be that Zerubbabel in his own human strength is powerless to perform the service that's required. And so here in chapters 3 and 4, we see how God intervenes to cleanse and equip the servant in chapter 3, and then to empower the servant with ongoing sustainable energy through the work of the Spirit in chapter 4. If we had the opportunity to work through all of these eight night visions, we would see that these two visions are the centerpiece of the sequence. And what that means is they're the main point, the main message, if you will, comes in chapters three and four of these first six chapters. And so here we see what God is working toward. That is to say, for the nation of Israel at this time when the temple's being rebuilt, the second temple. For them to be functioning properly, their leaders must be properly fitted and equipped and cleansed for service. One takeaway for us this morning is that when we look at those whom God has gifted us to lead the church, those leaders must be uh, men of integrity and men who are empowered by the Spirit. And particularly in this passage this morning, we'll see that the Lord must do a work to cleanse and equip. And so if I could summarize this message in one phrase, it's this, only God can cleanse us and equip us to be effective servants. 
Only God can cleanse us and equip us to be effective servants. Now let's look in more detail at the text. If you notice in chapter 3, verse 1, it begins with God uh, showing Zechariah the prophet, Joshua the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now if we read chapters 1 and 2 before this, we would notice a few things different about this particular scene. In the other visions that Zechariah has seen, often there are symbolic things, uh, elements that he sees. He'll see maybe a tree. He'll see uh, men riding horses. But in this vision, he sees an actual historical person, the person of Joshua. Usually there's an intervening angel that's explaining what's going on. But here instead, uh, he is directly communicating with the angel of the Lord, and so this is a bit different. The Lord himself is telling him what's going on. And here, uh, Joshua is going to take center stage, Joshua the high priest. He is the one who is going to be cleansed for priestly service. And so, uh, he begins... Uh, by addressing Joshua. This is a chart uh, you see in the screen before you that kind of gives an outline of the eight night visions, the fact that this chapter 3 and chapter 4 are the centerpiece visions. This one addresses the high priest who is cleansed uh, for proper leadership of the nation. So who is Joshua the high priest? Joshua the high priest The name Joshua is familiar to us, of course, from the book of Joshua, but this Joshua is a later figure. He lives after the exile. He's mentioned not only in Zechariah, but in other biblical books as well, such as Haggai, Ezra, and Nehemiah. He's of the high priestly line. That is to say, his lineage could be traced all the way back to Levi, He was of the high priestly line. He was instrumental in building the altar and the temple that was going to be built. This would be completed a few years after this sequence. His father went into exile uh, as part of the group that went into exile when the uh, temple fell in 587 B.C. And so he's now returned and he's likely an older man, probably in his late 50s, early 60s. His descendants are later indicted for intermarrying uh, foreign wives, but that will come well after Joshua's death. So Joshua is seen as a spiritual leader. He's an important leader because as the high priest, he represents the nation. That is to say, he goes before God on their behalf He officiates the sacrifices to atone for sin. He intercedes for them through prayer. And so there's a sense in which Joshua's trial is also a trial for the nation. If Joshua is acquitted, the nation is acquitted. If Joshua is indicted, the nation itself uh, comes under uh, the allegations that are focused on Joshua. And so Joshua's trial, as it were, becomes an important part of what's going to happen. So what exactly takes place? Notice in verse 1, it says that he's standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is standing at his right hand to accuse him. 
What we have here is often called in a scholarship of the Bible a divine council scene. Now, what do they mean by that? What they mean is we have a number of passages in the Old Testament where angels appear before God. It's as if to say God is the king and all his angels, all his ministering angels appear before him. They present themselves before him and they do his bidding. Psalm 82.1 says God has taken his place in the divine assembly. He judges among the gods. The idea here being that the angels present themselves before the Lord. And at times this includes even Satan. Job 1 and 2 tells us a story of Satan coming before the Lord. And there's a conversation that they have about Job. And then Satan leaves to afflict Job uh, because God gives him permission to do so. And so it would seem that Joshua's trial here takes place in the heavenly realms, the royal court, where the Lord is reigning supreme. We have uh, glimpses into this in the New Testament as well. We know that when Christ uh, is raised from the dead and ascends to heaven, one of the things that he does is triumphs over angelic powers. The Apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. And so here, Joshua is on trial before the angel of the Lord. We see another parallel of this in 1 Kings 22. That's where Micaiah sees a vision of the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven sitting beside him on his right hand and on his left. What's the significance of this? Well, the significance is that Joshua is going to be tried not just from a human earthly court, but in the very presence of God. He's going to be judged before the Lord himself. This is a thought that perhaps we have from time to time that ought to fill us with a healthy sense of fear, and that is at one time in our life in the future, we will stand before God and we will give an account of our lives. And so here Joshua stands before the Lord and Satan is standing at his uh, right hand. And that's where the prosecutor typically stood. And so Satan is going to begin to accuse Joshua and say that he's not worthy. Now, a couple things just to notice about this. One is that the angel of the Lord is the key figure in this vision. As we walk through these eight night visions, if you read them uh, in your own Bible reading, usually the first character that's introduced is a really important one, and then other characters also become prominent. And here the angel of the Lord is prominent. Now, who is the angel of the Lord? If we had time to kind of trace this throughout Scripture, we would see a lot of indications that point to the fact that this angel is no ordinary angel. He's the angel of the Lord, but at times he seems to speak as though he were himself the Lord. And here's a passage where he does that because we see the angel and we see Satan and suddenly the Lord is speaking to Satan. In other words, Satan has come before the angel of the Lord and the one who speaks to him is the Lord And when the Lord speaks, he refers to himself in the third person, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
What do we uh, make of all this? How do we put it together? I think what this suggests is that the angel is speaking as the Lord, but also referring to the Lord. It's as if to say the angel is distinct from the Lord and yet is the Lord in some mysterious way. The best way, I think, to account for this is that the angel of the Lord is actually the Lord Jesus Christ himself before he takes on the incarnation, before he takes a human nature. After the New Testament, the angel of the Lord never appears again, but he appears at key places in the Old Testament where the nation of Israel needs to be led specifically by the Lord, and so often the angel will lead them. We see this in the book of Judges, for instance, where there's a vacuum of military leadership. The angel of the Lord uh, takes that place and he leads the nation. So I think the best understanding is that the angel is himself the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's presiding over this court. He's hearing the accusations of Satan, and he's responding and taking initiative and in cleansing Joshua and fitting him for service. And so the angel of the Lord is the key figure, and the other is Satan. Now the word Satan, in Hebrew, it's really a transliterated term, the word Satan means an adversary. He's called in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the accuser of our brethren. Satan is the one who accuses uh, before God believers and sort of undermines their standing as if to say they're not really worthy of God's grace and God's righteousness. And so Satan takes this form of an adversary in opposition to God and to Joshua. The Apostle John tells us the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And we see really the first glimpse of Satan is in the garden where he is instrumental in deceiving Eve leading to the fall. Satan, we see in Scripture, is a personal being who opposes God in the human sphere. In 1 Chronicles 21, the Lord, uh, Satan rather opposes Israel by inciting David to take a census of all the males in Israel. So here, Satan takes an adversarial stance and he begins to accuse Joshua. We're not exactly told what Satan says in accusing Joshua, but we have to assume it's what the rest of the story tells us, that Joshua is not fit for service. He's not worthy of being in this place of representing the people because he's a sinner and he's disqualified by his sin. So Satan is contesting his right to be the high priest. Notice what the Lord says to Satan in verse 2. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? What he essentially is saying here is, you have no right, no standing to accuse Joshua, not because Joshua is himself worthy, not because Joshua has done something tremendous to earn God's favor. Notice what he says here. Joshua stands before me because the Lord has chosen Jerusalem and the Lord has taken him out of the fire. The idea here being the Lord is the one who equips him and cleanses him and makes him worthy of service. It's nothing that Joshua himself can do. 
When we think about religion across the world and across history, most often people have tried to approach God by saying, I'm going to do something that will somehow earn favor with the Lord. I'm going to uh, do religious observances. I'm going to uh, just try to be a good person, an upstanding citizen, and by this, you know, I sort of hope that when I Uh, reach the afterlife that my good will outweigh my bad and that the Lord will allow me into heaven. This is a common misperception that people have. And really what this is saying is Joshua himself has nothing to offer. It has to be the Lord's work. The Lord must, uh, on the basis of his own character and initiative, equip and, and cleanse Joshua for service And I'll say this this morning, if you're here this morning trusting that somehow your good will outweigh your bad, scriptures tell us that only the Lord can provide us the forgiveness and cleansing from sin that we need. God alone can do this. And so notice how it describes his uh, clothing here in verse 3. It says he was clothed with filthy garments. This word is a rather drastic term that usually connotes something like being stained with human waste. It's a very disgusting picture of defilement, and it would have shocked and appalled the people that were there. It's like showing up for your wedding day completely covered in mud, not having the proper attire. Joshua is completely unfit for service. And so uh, it's, it's shocking, it's appalling. Rather than having clean garments, which the priests were supposed to have, instead he's clothed with filthy garments. It's disgusting, and it must have made those around him recoil in horror. The book of Leviticus tells us that priestly garments were considered sacred or holy. The high priest was fitted with garments which were described as being holy garments. And so here, Joshua is not fitted in the right garb. Uh, When I was younger, I used to have this recurring nightmare that I would show up somewhere completely unprepared. I don't know if you've ever had that, whether it's a class or something else. Uh, It's happened to me a few times in terms of uh, I was supposed to be the speaker and somehow had forgotten, and so I was called on and had to come up with something really quick as I was walking up. Thankfully, it didn't happen this morning. But if you've ever had that thought, I'm I'm shocked I'm not ready because I'm not really prepared or fit for this. And that's the situation Joshua finds himself in. He's supposed to be in these illustrious garments, including even a turban, a turban which would be a headdress. A, A turban was worn by people who had sort of a high status in society. And so he was supposed to be even outfitted with this, and the turban would say, holy to the Lord. The idea was the priest was set apart to God, and so he was supposed to be uh, the Lord's man who's fitted for service. And so what happens next? Notice verse 4. He's standing before the angel And he speaks. We have to assume here this is the angel who's speaking. And he says to those standing before him, remove these filthy garments from him. And then he says, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then 
Zechariah chimes in. He says, let them put a clean turban on his head as well. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. So the angel here takes the initiative and he says, I'm going to outfit you with clean, proper garments. He takes off the filthy ones And we see here in verse 4 that this is really ultimately a picture of the sin problem because notice he says when he takes off the filthy clothes, he says, I have taken your iniquity away from you. The clothing here represented Joshua's own sinful standing before the Lord. And so the angel takes the initiative and in removing these garments, he's saying, I'm cleansing you from your sin. I'm taking away the iniquity from you. And now you will wear my bright fitting clothes. You'll be clothed with my garments. That is to say, with my righteousness. There's a picture of this in uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 4, where the prophet says that in that day the Lord will cleanse the survivors of Israel. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem The Lord will have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. The Lord alone can provide cleansing from sin, and we see that happening here. And as a result, there's a major change that takes place. Notice verse 6, the angel of the Lord admonishes Joshua, and he says, this is what the Lord of hosts says, if you walk in my ways, if you perform my service, you will govern or judge my house, have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Notice the sequence. Once Joshua is cleansed of his sin and fitted with the right garments, the Lord promises him now that he will have access to God himself. He's really given three promises here. He gets to uh, judge or govern the house. That is, he gets to be the overseer in the temple He also gets to keep the courts. Uh, You will have charge of my courts. This is a word related to the original charge given to the priests in Numbers 3. They were to keep and to serve, to guard and to serve. And so Joshua is given the charge of the priest to guard the sacred items. And then it says he's given free access among those standing here. What is this referring to? Well, In the context of the chapter, the most likely group that is standing there are the angels around the Lord and Satan, meaning that Zechariah, rather uh, Joshua, is given free access to the Lord himself. I think we see a, a sequence here that when someone is cleansed from their sin and given access to the Lord, we then have opportunity to come directly before the Lord. And Joshua here is given that uh, access to the Lord. Imagine if you had, if we lived in a royal society where you had special access that whenever you wanted, you could just sort of come right before the presence of the king. And this is what Joshua is given, free access to the Lord himself. So it's sort of like saying Joshua as the high priest is, yes, ministering on the human plane, but he also is ministering before the Lord and he has free access to come directly before the Lord's presence. As believers today, we know that Christ has made this way of access free for us. 
When our sins are forgiven, when we've trusted in Christ for salvation, there's no longer a veil that separates us. There's no longer uh, these rites of ablution that we have to go through. We don't have to perform some ritual. Christ has given us free access to the presence of the Lord himself. So here Joshua is given this promise that he will be able to access the Lord. And then uh, we get to these last three verses, and I think these are actually some of the most precious verses of the book of Zechariah because then the prophet sees how Joshua is really foreshadowing a a greater reality to come. Notice verse 8. He says, listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you, indeed they are men who are a symbol... For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. Joshua is not only promised direct direct access to the Lord, but now the prophet Zechariah is told, Joshua actually foreshadows someone even greater. That is the servant, capital S, my servant, the branch. Now, this is a really important concept in the Old Testament. I just want to spend a moment talking about this. Who is the servant and who is the branch? What's interesting about this branch image is it appears four times in the Old Testament in the prophets, in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, and in Isaiah. In these four occurrences of the branch, certain aspects of the branch are amplified For instance, in Jeremiah 23, the branch is associated with being the ideal king who will reign in righteousness, Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. Here in Zechariah 3, the branch is connected to being the servant. He's the servant of the Lord. Now, that may seem like uh, a diminutive title in our minds, but to be the servant of the Lord was a very high standing in the ancient world in the Old Testament Uh, Joshua, if you look at the book of Joshua, he's first called the servant of Moses. Only at the end of his life is he called the servant of the Lord. That meant he represented the Lord. He had a high standing. He was the Lord's own servant. So in Jeremiah 23, the branch is the king. Here the branch is the servant. In chapter 6 of Zechariah, the branch will be connected to the man. Zechariah 6 says, behold the man whose name is Branch. He's a notable man who will be the Lord's representative. And then the final place is the branch in Isaiah 4 is God's agent for beauty and glory. What's so remarkable about this? Well, if you relate this to the fourfold gospel witness, it seems that each of these traits of the branch later gets amplified in a gospel. For instance, the branch's king is delineated in Matthew. Matthew presents Jesus as the king, the son of David who's come to take his throne. The book of Mark relates Jesus as the servant, the one who serves, who came to seek and to serve and to give his life a ransom. In the book of Luke, he's the man. Behold the man, the son of man. He's the truly human Jesus who's come to Uh, make a way of redemption for humanity, for those who trust in Christ. And in the Gospel of John, he's the Son of God. That is, he's the agent of beauty and glory. He has the fullness of God and the fullness of man. And so what this tells for us is that Joshua here isn't just 
a high priest, but he's a foreshadowing of the Messiah who's going to come and who's going to be God's servant. And then it goes on as it concludes here in 9 and 10 to say, along with this, something very special is going to happen. He says, Behold, the stone I have set before Joshua on, its, on this one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. What this is referring to, I believe, is the fact that the servant who's going to come is going to give his own life as an atoning sacrifice to remove the sin and iniquity of the land in one day. Now, how did this play out? Well, I believe that the Gospels tell us that Jesus gave his life as an atoning sacrifice for sin. All who believe in him are saved. But I think even within this context, this is also a promise that will hold true for the nation of Israel in the future. Zechariah 12 tells us of a day when the Lord will pour out a spirit of grace and of supplication on the nation of Israel, and they will recognize the one whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And so Zechariah here gets a picture of the fact that this coming servant will atone for sin. He's omniscient. The the seven eyes here represent his comprehensive knowledge, and he's going to remove the iniquity of the land in one day. And as a result of that, verse 10, everyone will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is a picture of the coming millennial kingdom when Jesus will reign on the throne. And this happens as a result of Jesus' atoning work, which one day in the future we trust will be applied to the nation of Israel when they repent and recognize Jesus as Messiah. This passage is an ancient passage with continuing relevant truth for us. So as we think about this, uh, I'd like to just draw a couple of applications as we conclude. First, we need to understand that Satan is the accuser of Christians and that we cannot listen to his lies. One of my favorite reformers is a man named Martin Luther. Martin Luther certainly had his faults, but he was a very passionate man, and uh, in his discovery of the gospel, he recognized justification by faith in a way that really changed the course of history. It was after this recognition that he went, underwent a period of time when he felt that he was under, uh, under specific spiritual attack, it's as if uh, the, Satan himself was causing him to doubt. And he said he heard this constant voice in his ear that, uh, are you alone the, the only one who's discovered the truth? And all these doubts came into his mind, and he began to wonder, uh, is God really for me? Are the promises of the gospel true? And as he went through this uh, experience, he would later say this. This was his conclusion. When the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. Luther's faith stood firm because he knew that his righteousness was not sufficient, but that the righteousness of Christ had been imputed to him. As one hymn writer wrote it memorably, when Satan tempts me to despair 
and tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Second, I would say this, only God can cleanse and equip you for service. Like Joshua, we have no standing on our own. But the writer of uh, Hebrews, the biblical book of Hebrews, tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Our high priest who pleads for us is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the book of Hebrews tells us that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He alone can cleanse us. If you've never placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to receive forgiveness for sin, I encourage you today to take that step of faith, call out to the Lord to forgive you and to cleanse you from your sin. And then lastly, obedience is critical to continued fellowship with God. Joshua is charged here. He must walk in the ways of God. He must keep his commands. He must do what God has called him to do. And I would encourage us along these same lines that we too need to be giving ourselves fully to serving the Lord. The word holiness has sort of fallen on hard times in our day. But scripture calls upon us to live lives that are set apart for the Lord. Uh, First Peter tells us you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So I ask you this morning, does your life reflect the holiness and glory of God? Are you set apart from sin? Are you living a life that reflects God's holy character? We are made for fellowship with him. Don't let sin inhibit that fellowship. Make sure that your life is in conformity to what Christ has called us to be. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, this time we've had together this morning to look into the word. I pray that you would take these truths and apply them to our hearts. I pray that we would be encouraged by your work of forgiveness and cleansing, and I pray that you would cleanse and equip us for service, that we would be faithful ministers of the gospel in the various contexts which you called us. I thank you for the atoning sacrifice of Christ, which makes this possible Uh, We trust in his shed blood on our behalf and are thankful for it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.